0: of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites to the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw the royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of that time uh, that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in, in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. And the second reading is from Mark 7, starting at verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered their house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart but the stomach and then goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles for it is from within, from the human heart that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person.
1: Christians shouldn't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, Christians should boycott Amazon and Apple and Adidas. Uh, Christians should only vote for Christian political parties and candidates. Christians should keep quiet about their moral positions out of respect for others. Uh, You've probably heard Christians say some version of each of these things uh, over the years. Uh, They're all statements that get at the same question. How should followers of Jesus engage with the world around them? Uh, And each of those statements actually makes a further, uh, largely correct assumption that the world we live in, for the most part, doesn't acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. And so, how do we engage faithfully with the culture and context in which we find ourselves, even when it doesn't worship the God who we worship? Uh, When I was a teenager, the thorniest version of this question, the one that exercised teenagers in a youth group about whether or not this was okay, was whether or not you could play violent video games. Would playing a violent video game as a Christian inevitably lead you to actually become a violent person in your heart as well? Uh, The most personal version of this question for me, though, wasn't about video games, which I couldn't really care less about. It was about music, and this was a hot-button issue for teenagers in my uh, time as well. Uh, Should Christians listen to music with swearing in it? Actually, should Christians listen to music that isn't explicitly Christian music at all? This was a difficult one for me because I really loved a lot of music, but it turns out I really didn't love any Christian music. It turns out, actually, I thought most of it was pretty rotten. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was uh, about 17, my favourite album was uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds murder ballads. Bad Seeds, murder, hardly wholesome content for a young Christian man. Could my love for that kind of music actually be compatible with my love for the Lord Jesus? What does it look like to remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that doesn't acknowledge him as Lord and which often operates on fundamentally different principles and convictions to those that the children of God live by? That's the question the book of Daniel sets before us. And it it raises the question of whether or not it's even possible to do it without substantially compromising your own convictions. Uh, Every generation throughout the whole history of the church has had to ask this question in one way or another. Every generation has had a culture that has been part of that's had different idols, different particular concerns, different evils as well as different goods. And this question has come up again and again and again. Uh, historically there's been a spectrum of approaches to this issue a range of responses to the culture in which christians have found themselves Uh, and that spectrum kind of operates really between two poles Uh, on the one hand there's total withdrawal from the world the amish option if you like no technology producing our own food never going into the city the world is to be avoided on the other hand there's the total embrace of the world the appeasement position if you like We want to actually be connected with the world so that they might come to know Jesus and so we're supposed to be as similar to the world as possible so that they can actually know that we love them and accept them as they are. Uh, Most of the time, Christians have operated in between those two spectrums and to be honest, Christians often throughout the ages have picked and chosen when to withdraw and when to engage and embrace the world depending on their own particular preferences. But it's exactly this question that animates the story that we're beginning to unpack tonight together in Daniel. And what this story teaches us is that it's possible to find a kind of gracious balance in our engagement with the world that connects with the world while also remaining faithful to our basic Christian convictions. A kind of humble confidence, as we've called this series, that that leads to a distinctive way of being in the world as Jesus' people. And central to the strategy that Daniel teaches us is the singular focus that he displays in the verse that really forms the heart of chapter 1 and perhaps, in a sense, the heart of the whole book. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. What makes Daniel distinctive is his ability to engage with the culture around him while also recognising that the culture actually presents opportunities for defilement for corruption, for his soul to be stained and polluted. And it's his resolve to remain undefiled that makes his life and that of his friends so distinctive in their context. His determination to live a life that honours God, even when it meant putting himself in danger, makes him stand out in a way that in the end brings him great praise from the pagan culture around him. So as we begin this journey with Daniel in Babylon tonight, uh, his story is going to teach us uh, three things that matter for engaging with the world, and they're going to be up on the screen here for you. They'll form our points this evening. Uh, Firstly, uh, Daniel has a creative strategy. Secondly, Daniel has a resolute heart. And thirdly, Daniel leads them into a distinctive life. A creative strategy, a resolute heart, and a distinctive life. So let's begin there, point one. Now, the story begins in a time of great crisis for the people of God. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God, that is, the different bits and pieces in the temple that were dedicated to God and his service. These he brought to the land of Shinar to Babylon, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods, put them in his own temple's, You see, for decades before Daniel's story begins, the northern Israelite tribe of Judah had lived under the oppressive dominion of the the empire of Assyria, the great world power of the day. They paid massive amounts in tribute and tax, and they were basically just kept in their little corner, not able to really make many decisions for themselves. But of course, like all world powers eventually do, Assyria's time came and went was defeated by the mighty Babylonian Empire who continued to march on to the west and at the start of the 6th century BC, the Babylonians sealed the fate of what was left of Israel. Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, fell and the temple which was built as a house for the Lord was desecrated and torn apart and its precious symbols of God's love and faithfulness were hauled off to instead grace the shrines of pagan gods, of idols in Babylon. By all appearances, at least from a human perspective, The God of Israel had been defeated and destroyed by the gods of Babylon. But there's a hint here, even in the first two verses of this chapter, that that isn't the full truth of the matter. In verse 2, we're told that all this has happened. Why? Because the Lord allowed it. And if he's allowed it, then just maybe there's still a future for his people with their God. Daniel and his friends, of course, have lived through all of this unsettling experience. They're, they're young men, most of their life has been lived under Assyrian and then Babylonian occupation, and now they've been carried off with the bright young things from the court of Jerusalem to serve in Babylon's capital. Verse 3 the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of, and of the nobility. Young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace, the Christian sukkahs, if you like, of the world. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah from the tribe of Judah and the palace master gave them other names. He gives them Babylonian names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, Azariah he called Abednego. What's being described for us here is straightforward, regular, cookie-cutter empire policy. This is what empires do when they defeat other nations. It's an imperial re-education program. It's like the the, uh, terrifying uh, re-education camps that you hear about in nations of the world where things have begun to fall apart and where tyrants have taken power. It's a little bit different for Daniel and his friends. It's not a a camp uh, where they're kind of locked in a cell. It's one where they're invited into the very centre of power. What we're seeing here is a straightforward, time-honoured strategy of empire to assimilate defeated minorities into the culture of the majority power. And so the best and the brightest from the defeated city of Jerusalem are brought into the very heart of the empire, and their culture is to be replaced by the best of Babylonian culture. They're to live not as Hebrews, but as Babylonians. They're to eat not what Hebrews eat, but what the king eats and drinks. And when their re-education is complete, they're to enter into the service of their new king. And as we've seen already, even their Hebrew names are replaced with Babylonian ones. The whole purpose is that after three years in this program, they won't be Israelites anymore. They'll be Babylonians, indistinguishable from the most blue-blooded member of Nebuchadnezzar's court. Think about the situation in which these young men find themselves, and think about those options that we've teased out already that Christians have often brought to the question of how to engage with the culture. Total withdrawal, total embrace. What options are available to Daniel and his friends here? Well, total withdrawal, not really an option at this point, is it? Total withdrawal, just going to mean death, actually, if you go, no, I'm not going to serve in your court, well, off with his head. That's just not an option. The other option is total embrace, to blend in, no questions asked. Uh, Total embrace is actually precisely what the king here is offering. He's saying, become one of us, and in doing so, take a place in the very seat of power, comfortable and secure. And it seems as though most of the bright, handsome young Israelites that now find themselves in Babylon make their choice to totally embrace the culture, to embrace their new context. But Daniel chooses to do something very different. Verse 8, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. And so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. What I think is really very clear here is that Daniel knows exactly what's going on. They all do, actually. It's not a secret. Daniel knows what it is that the Babylonians and their king are trying to do. They're trying to turn him into a Babylonian. And here what he says is, I'm not going to stand for that. I won't be bought, I won't be assimilated, I won't betray my people and my God by becoming indistinguishably just like the people who've defeated the nation and the city that I love. He rejects total embrace. Total withdrawal is not an option. And so he takes option three, what you might call a creative strategy of engagement. And so what he does is to go and say to the palace master, don't give me the king's rations of meat and wine. Instead, just give us vegetables and water. Uh, the palace master, of course, re- responds, that's going to put me in a lot of trouble with the king. He says, it would endanger my head with the king. And so Daniel says, great, well, actually, let's just come to an arrangement here. How about you just test it on us for a while? Give us 10 days on this diet, and if it turns out that actually we look at least as good as the other guys, then we can keep doing this, and the king doesn't have to know. And so the palace master agrees. Uh, what is it that Daniel is doing here? there's a few things to note. Firstly, he accepts his new context. He doesn't try to run away. He doesn't go to the palace master and say, please send me back to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the palace master and say, please find another job for me that's not in the king's service. He accepts the position in which he's been placed. But at the same time, he refuses to let his new context overwhelm him and change him. He comes up with a creative strategy to maintain his identity as an Israelite, even while he remains in the palace of the Babylonian king. Uh, In verse 7, we read that the palace master gave uh, Daniel and his friends uh, other names, um, those Babylonian names, to replace their Hebrew names. Uh, The original Hebrew text uses a word that reappears in verse 10. Uh, Literally in verse 7, it says that the palace master resolved names for them. The king resolves to make these young uh, uh, Hebrew men into good Babylonians. Daniel knows that's what's going on. And so here in verse 8, he resolves to remain who he is, a servant not of the king of of Babylon, but of the king of kings. There are a few more things worth noting about Daniel's strategy. Uh, It's interesting to note that it doesn't seem to occur to him that just the mere act of serving the Babylonian king would be a bad and defiling thing. Uh, One thing I think that Daniel teaches us here really clearly is that to serve a community that doesn't worship the same God who you worship is not in and of itself a bad thing. And in fact, most of the time is a good thing. It should be obvious, really, because the God of Israel, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, is the creator of heaven and earth. The Babylonians belong to him, just like the Hebrews do. Australia belongs to him, just like ancient Israel did. They matter to God. And so to serve them is to serve him. To do good to them is to do good to him. What's at stake here for Daniel isn't whether or not he serves the king of Babylon, but whether or not he can maintain his identity and distinctiveness as an Israelite while he does so. But you see something even more than that. You see in Daniel's interaction with the palace master that he actually respects and even cares for members of the culture that are are trying to assimilate him. He takes seriously the palace master's concern for his own welfare. He says, I'm going to lose my head. And Daniel says, well, that's a fair point. Let's talk about that. Let's see if we can come to an arrangement he actually takes into into consideration the concerns of those he finds himself among. Uh, He also, in walking this kind of middle ground between total withdrawal and total embrace, uh, puts himself in danger. Because if you think about it, if the king's palace master is worried that he might lose his head, how much more danger will Daniel be in if his strategy fails? Daniel risks losing his own head in order to maintain his distinctive identity as an Israelite. And so one of the other things that Daniel uh, tells us, that this story tells us, we'll see this again in the weeks to come, is that it's no easy thing to stay in the culture without becoming the culture. It's a thing that actually might cause danger for you at various points. Daniel comes up with this really creative strategy, how to engage, not to totally embrace and not to totally withdraw. What's the result of all this? Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations two words you don't often hear together in our culture, better and fatter, but there you go. The Hebrew word actually kind of means um, uh, firmer skinned. So it could actually mean not not fatter, but actually like gains, right? They've made real gains. (laughs) These aren't just the Christian sukkahs, they're the Adam Hotates, actually, of the world. (laughs) They turn out much better, just physically, as well as in all the other ways they turn out to be great. And so the guard continues to withdraw their royal rations and the wine that they had to drink gives them vegetables instead. Daniel's strategy is a success. He manages to remain undefiled, to maintain his distinctiveness, while remaining there in the heart of the Babylonian empire, in the very centre of the enemy's territory. Uh, For what it's worth, just as a side note, um, I don't think this is a subtle suggestion here that vegetarianism is God's intention for people. We're actually supposed to see a minor miracle here. A bunch of guys eat nothing but vegetables for 10 days and put on more weight and more muscle than the ones eating all the protein. The point is that God has honoured Daniel's faithfulness. Why does Daniel take this course? What, What is it that leads him down this path instead of the other options that might be open to him? What is it that he hopes to achieve? Well, the answer to both of those questions is the same. He does this because he has a resolute heart and he does it in order to protect his resolute heart, to keep his heart resolute. So point two, Daniel's resolute heart. Uh, verse 8, as I've mentioned, uh, really is uh, the heart of this chapter, the heart of Daniel's strategy, maybe even the heart of the whole book in one sense. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Uh, now, defile is a pretty full-on word. Not a word that we use very often in our context, but it's, it's a word that you might actually have some personal experience of, even if you don't uh, necessarily use the word. Uh, to be defiled means to be corrupted to be polluted to defile something is to take something which is pure and beautiful and to bend it and break it so that it becomes dirty and doesn't work anymore and it isn't what it's supposed to be Daniel knows that Babylon's strategy here is to take these Israelites and turn them into Babylonians presumably including worshipping Babylonian gods and Daniel says that is defiling to me I am pure and beautiful. I am a creature who God has made. I belong to the true and living God, the creator of everything. I can't become this. Daniel focuses this talk of defilement on the food and the wine that he's given. I think it's really worth asking why that is, actually. Uh, And I've had an interesting experience digging into this a bit this week, because I used to think that I knew what the answer to that question was. Why is it that Daniel focuses on food and drink here? I thought I knew the answer. turns out, actually, I think I was wrong. Don't hear that very often, so listen up. I used to think that the connection was between Daniel's faithfulness as an Israelite and the Old Testament law that God had given to his people. And so there are two possible reasons why why Daniel might have rejected the king's rations. The law that God gave to Israel included plenty of laws about food. Certain foods were clean, certain foods were unclean, and eating the unclean foods would defile you. But you see, there's actually nothing in the law about all the kinds of foods that Daniel mentions here. There's, there's some laws around meat, for sure, particularly being prepared in the right way, animals being slaughtered in the right way. But there's nothing in the law about avoiding wine, thank goodness. And so that can't be Daniel's reason, I don't think. That can't be Daniel's reason. The second possible reason for rejecting the royal rations, especially perhaps the meat, is that these things would quite possibly have been sacrificed in the temple to Babylon's gods before they were consumed in the palace. And so to eat it would mean participating in the worship of Babylon's idols, which would also make Daniel unclean, which would also bring defilement. Uh, But according uh, to the report about this same period of history we have in uh, 2 Kings 25, uh, Judah's king regularly ate in the palace of the Babylonian king after he'd been carried off into exile, and there's no suggestion there made at all that doing so made him unclean or that there was any sin involved in it whatsoever. I don't think worrying about food that's been sacrificed to idols can be Daniel's reason here either. In both of those cases, the issue facing Daniel would be one of, of ritual defilement. But I think there's something deeper going on here. There's a deeper kind of defilement at play that Daniel is very aware of. Daniel knows what's going on here, that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to turn Israelites into Babylonians to destroy their distinctiveness as worshippers of Israel's God. Food is only the surface issue in this. The real issue is identity. Uh, Food, of course, is uh, linked to identity uh, quite strongly in many different cultures around the world. Uh, Sometimes we even identify people by their national foods. Uh, The Brits call the French frogs because they eat frogs. Americans will meet an Australian on the street and say, throw another shrimp on the barbie because apparently that's what makes us Australian, right? Um, or you might, uh, you might think to a, a moment, um, not my best moment in my life, of having uh, some members of our 10 a.m. congregation come around for a welcome lunch. They were new to our congregation here, uh, an Iranian couple. And I just didn't put two and two together, that serving pork to Iranians, Christians or otherwise, was a bad idea. They ate it. Amazing. They had a real kind of like Acts 10 moment of going, well, Jesus says all food is clean, and so I'm going to eat the pork for the first time in my life. Food, right, is a real marker of cultural identity for many, many cultures. And so Daniel's decision here to focus on food uh, makes a lot of sense. It's an identity issue. But the palace food itself isn't what he's worried about defiling him. Uh, There's a sense in which I think his decision to focus on food here is almost arbitrary. Almost. It makes sense. It's a clever strategy because of how food is linked to identity. But actually what it is that he's about here is a deeper kind of defilement. If he's not worried about the food itself bringing defilement, what is it that he's worried about? Well, he's worried about the one thing that was always the real issue facing Israel, an issue far deeper than the ritual observance that marked them out as the people of God. He's worried about his heart. Israel's prophets make it clear again and again that that's what's really at stake in everything between Israel and their God throughout the whole Old Testament and, of course, into the New Testament and the new people of God as well. Isaiah, for example, chapter 29, God says, Israel honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They do everything right in terms of the ritual observance, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus makes exactly the same point in the passage we had read from Mark. It isn't the food that goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of their heart. Daniel gets this. He knows that what's at stake in the option of total embrace of Babylonian culture is his heart. I think what Daniel does here is to identify something that actually makes sense as a mark of distinctiveness to maintain his Hebrew identity and also perhaps is a way for him to avoid actually just giving in to the longings of his heart to be accepted, to walk in the halls of power, to be safe and secure. That's what the culture is tempting his heart to do. And he says, I won't have it. I need to make a stand. I must maintain my distinctiveness. Why? Because my heart is set on the Lord of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And I want to stay that way. And so he picks his thing. He picks food as his issue. His heart's resolved to worship his God. And so he devises a creative strategy of engagement, which in effect says to the Babylonians, I will gladly serve you, but you can't have my heart. Daniel's creative strategy flows out of a resolute heart, a heart that's determined to remain fixed on God, and his strategy was aimed at keeping his heart resolute. And what that results in, of course, is a distinctive life. Point three. The result of Daniel's strategy is that uh, he and his friends become the best of the best. They remain distinctively Israelites, still worshipping the God of the land that they've been exiled from, And yet they become more expert and fluent in the heights of Babylonian culture than the Babylonians themselves. It's like an American coming to teach uh, about Australian literature at university. These guys rock up, they know nothing about the heights of the beautiful culture of Babylon, and they become the experts. But note the part that God plays in all this. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. And Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. And as you go on to read, actually, he's better at visions and dreams than the magicians and the enchanters of ancient Babylon. How did Daniel and his friends get so good at Babylonian culture? Well, God gives them knowledge and skill in it. That's deeply significant in and of itself for the question of how we engage with a culture that doesn't honour Jesus as Lord. You see, it wasn't serving in the Babylonian court that threatened to defile Daniel. Daniel. And it wasn't Babylonian culture, it's literature and wisdom that threatened to defile Daniel. Actually, God was happy to place Daniel there and to immerse him in this culture. And what that means for us, at the very least in our own time and place, is that we should be very, very careful when we have those thoughts of assuming that the world around us is straightforwardly evil, or that actually it must somehow be defiling simply because it's not a Christian thing. Parts of our world, parts of our culture, of course, are straightforwardly evil and obviously opposed to the things of the Lord. But in God's grace and mercy, there's also much about our world and our culture that is to be celebrated and indeed even embraced as a good gift from our Father. And so here's what Daniel did. He found a way to do this, to be in a pagan culture and even contribute to pagan culture without letting it defile him by getting a hold of his heart. What might it look like to see that kind of resolute heart and that kind of distinctive living in our own time and place? Uh, here's one example. It's from uh, Tim Keller's uh, book on work named Every Good Endeavour. Here's what Keller writes. I spoke to a man and a woman who were both advertising executives. I mean, you know, you think of defiling industries in our world. I spoke to a man and a woman who were both advertising executives and were thinking about leaving their respective companies. The man worked for an agency with a sports car company for a client and he was under pressure not for the first time to market his car as a means to sex appeal. He pushed back against this line um, of advertising and got strong resistance in return. But the man kept his job because he changed the message from sex appeal to high performance vehicle and did so so skillfully and compellingly that the client and his company were satisfied. How's that for a creative strategy? He had the option of total withdrawal, just get out of there, right? There's just too much about working in this kind of place and the kinds of campaigns that we're doing that I just, I can't be among this as a Christian. On the other hand, he could just go, well, it's going to rock the boat a little bit to say, actually, no, no, we know that we've used this before and it works, but let's do something different. So total embrace seems like a good option. But instead he was able to maintain his own distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus, while contributing positively to a context where things often fall far short of the kingdom of God. He came up with a creative strategy. Now, doing that for each of us, I mean, for starters, we're not walking the halls of power. Most of us aren't high-powered advertising executives. It's going to look really different for us. But it's also worth noting that whatever our context, whatever kind of level of our society you engage with on a regular basis, this task is actually harder for us than it was for Daniel. There are a couple of reasons for that, I think. Daniel was exiled into a foreign culture, which he looked around him and he went, none of this is familiar. And I've actually been taught that all of this is bad for my whole life as an Israelite. We, on the other hand, live in a culture in which we're really very comfortable, aren't we? We've we've grown up, most of us, here in Australia. We know what it's like to engage with this culture. We love it, actually. It's who we are. And so to see those ways in which the culture around us is tugging at our hearts, where it threatens to defile us, that's hard work. That requires real spiritual insight. The other reason why it's a bit harder for us than it is for Daniel is that we live in the age of the church, right, the age after Jesus' death and resurrection, where actually the world has been changed as the gospel has come among us. We live in, in the, the, the Western world where there's just a strong tradition of Christian values in all kinds of ways, as much as they might be becoming unmoored in different parts of our society. There's lots of stuff about our culture that is great because it actually comes from our Christian heritage. And so actually this is tricky business because there's lots of stuff where we go, well, Is that defying or is it good? It's hard to know. And sometimes it can be both at the same time. So we're going to need to do some hard work here. We're all going to need to ask the question, what is it that's most likely to grab hold of my heart in this culture? Or to put it in terms of Daniel 1, what are your specific food issues? Maybe your food issues are around the kind of media that you consume. What you listen to and what you watch and what you play, of course, does shape you to some degree, and maybe for you, you are someone who actually needs to think about what it is that you're letting into yourself as you engage in those ways. Or you might be someone for whom Instagram is just a source of straightforward temptation to lust, or that being on Facebook is cultivating a spirit of contempt and condescension as you engage in arguments that belittle people you disagree with instead of seeking to actually understand them. There are all kinds of ways in which these might be food issues for you. One way to actually identify what those issues might be is to ask the question, where is it actually that I'm most like everyone else around me? That is, where am I least distinctive? So perhaps for you, your food issues might be around property. Nothing wrong as a Christian with owning a house, nothing wrong with doing renovations on your house. But could it, be the case, could it be the case that your reasons for saving to buy a house and spending on renovations are actually just exactly the same bog-standard reasons as everyone around you? I like it, and it'll make me look good to my friends. And there's actually nothing distinctively Christian at all about how you think about it. Maybe the culture's getting a hold of your heart in that way. Or maybe your food issues are around speech. Do you speak the same way as everyone else around you does, as your classmates and your colleagues and your friends Do you too easily slide into participating in the gossip and the slander that's always around at school and at uni in the office? Maybe the culture's getting a hold of your heart in this way. There's all kinds of other things that might be food issues for you, and it'd be worth spending some time this week, actually, as you pray and as you reflect, to, to ask God to help you identify what those things might be. Where is the culture getting a hold of your heart to make you less distinctive, less like Jesus, and more like the world around you? But there might also be some food issues for us, for us as a community of believers together as well. Uh, I think there are two things that are worth saying there. Firstly, we should acknowledge that each one of us is going to have our own particular food issues. Uh, What threatens to grab your heart might not be the same as what threatens to grab my heart. I don't share your food issue around pursuing a career at whatever cost. And you don't share my food issue around watching TV shows that just foster my cynicism and contempt for people who aren't like me. We all have different food issues in this regard. And so for us as a community, that's going to mean accepting and supporting and encouraging one another in our efforts to avoid defilement, whatever they look like, even though they'll be different for each of us. Not trying to argue people who feel in their conscience, no, actually, I I need to do some work in this particular area and say, ah, you don't don't need to worry about that. No, to say, actually, if this is a food issue for you, if this is an issue of defilement, if this is getting a hold of your heart, then I'm going to be on for you, helping you to do this. We've got to recognise that this is just going to look different for each of us. Secondly, though, there might be food issues that characterise us not just as as members of a community, but as a community together as a whole. One thing that I think we need to be aware of uh, here at St. John's at the 6pm congregation is a tendency to be exactly like the rest of the inner west uh, in the way that actually we just gravitate towards people, even at church, who are exactly like us. I think we actually have uh, an issue in our life where uh, those who are um, in the same life stage just hang out with those who are in the same life stage those with the same interests hang out with those of the same interests those who have the same political leanings hang out with people who have the same political leanings it's boring it's boring right I mean that's just what the rest of the world does how boring is that The people of God who belong to the Lord Jesus together are supposed to be able to break down those boundaries, to get past those things, to actually realise that Jesus is what matters and so to learn from one another and to share with one another in these things. Is there a food issue for us in this? And if there is, what creative strategies might we be able to come up with as a community of followers of Jesus to just be okay with being different to one another and even to revel in that? That would make us pretty distinctive in our part of the world. To do this kind of work, to realise what's going on for your heart, where the culture is getting a hold of your heart and threatening to defile you, that's going to mean that you're going to need all the courage of Daniel to do that kind of work. You're going to need a resolute heart like his. Identifying your own food issues is a challenging and confronting business. And so as we draw to a close, it's just worth asking, what is it that's going to make that possible? To do that kind of work, to be that committed, actually, to being distinctive for Jesus. Daniel of course is a wonderful example and challenged us. He risked losing his head in order to avoid being defiled. But the problem is for all of us if we're honest with ourselves we can't avoid defilement. True defilement Jesus says comes not from outside you but from within you it comes out of your heart and all of us our hearts are bent out of shape and we feel the world tugging at us in all kinds of ways. We need more than someone who to be an example and a challenge to us. We need someone who can make us clean. And friends, of course, that's precisely what we have in Jesus. Jesus walked into a foreign culture, didn't he? Out of the glory of heaven and his father's right hand to walk in the mess and the muck of a world lost in sin and darkness. You can't get a more foreign culture experience than that. And what did Jesus do? He sought out the sinners and the lepers. He befriended the most defiled of the defiled. And what was so distinctive about Jesus is that their defilement didn't defile him, but instead he made them clean. And not just them, but he stretched his arms out wide on the cross to embrace the world in its totality and let its defilement overwhelm him so that you and me and everyone who loves him can be clean from the inside out. Daniel risked his life to keep himself clean. Jesus gave his life to make you clean. And the more you let that love shown to us in Jesus, that great act of washing us and cleansing us so that we can be clean and holy in his sight, the more you let that get hold of your heart, your heart will grow more and more resolutely fixed on him. And you'll be more and more confident to face the world in a way that shines with the distinctiveness of Jesus Christ. That's my hope and prayer for each one of us and for us as a community together that that will be more and more true of us. And so let's keep walking with Daniel in this way as we seek to look more and more like our Lord Jesus. Amen.